Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. We know our country is pretty much known for being a northern country, but most of our daily lives still exist pretty close to that American border, right? I mean, what really happens up in the far north? But what we need to remember is that other countries think that what happens up in the far north is very interesting, and they see opportunity, countries like Russia and China. Well, Global News commentator Matthew Fisher has written a new piece on this on our Global News website. That's globalnews.ca. He joins us now to talk more about this. Matthew, thanks for being here. Well, thank you very much for having me, Simon. Now, what is it? what was the point that you wanted to make with this? What did you want to raise awareness of? Well, uh, there's two points. Uh, one, uh, which is the larger one that Canada has no northern strategy to speak of. But the second is that if we do not use our north, that is, if we do not have a policy to go there more often, if we do not have a policy to protect it, others will simply take it. And uh, there's a very, very significant buildup of military force and icebreaker force right now in the high Arctic, mostly Russia, but also China. And the Western response uh, has not been very good. The Canadians' response has been terrible. And uh, we finally, in the last year or two, started to do a few things, but it's it's not much. I mean, we send uh, warships up a certain distance, but we have almost no equipment that can operate in the high Arctic. You know, they talk of global warming, but it is still darn cold up there. There's still an awful lot of ice left up there. And uh, China has said that it is a near-Arctic power, whatever that means, and they plan to exploit all the resources because they're an international resource. That's their view of the Arctic Ocean. And uh, the Russians have put tremendous uh, military resources into the Arctic and also a lot of Arctic shipping. We're doing virtually nothing. How high up do you classify then as, as Canada's the, the point where you think we're no longer really paying attention and, and other countries are moving in? Well, I, I think it, uh, another way to classify it is, is this important to Canadians? Uh, and uh, we have a mystical attachment uh, to the North. But uh, I think our, uh, we don't do much about this. What, what is important and more uh, to your question is that other countries are very interested in the Arctic. And we claim to be an Arctic power. We certainly have the second longest Arctic coastline. And uh, we have done virtually nothing. I'm not talking about putting mines all over the place or factories. There may be one or two opportunities for mines, but I'm talking about looking at the fishing resources of the Arctic. I'm talking about uh, uh, literally having a means to protect it. Uh, mm-hmm. and that's with satellites. 
we don't do a particularly good job with that. And with these new systems, which we are investing some money in, to look at what's going on underwater, because Russian submarines operate all the time up there. The British do sometimes, and the Americans had submarines transiting uh, over the Canadian Arctic just in the past couple of weeks. Just in the past couple of weeks. Is it also gotten to the point, Matthew, where perhaps we can't rely on our allies to help us out with this as much as we used to be able to? This is one where our allies might help us uh, quite a bit, particularly the United States, which has suddenly twigged to the fact that they have Arctic interests too. They're now building icebreakers. Uh, They've sent aircraft carriers uh, up to the north end of Norway, and there's a group of countries, Norway, Denmark, which uh, uh, has Greenland, uh, and Iceland, uh, which doesn't have many financial resources, uh, who are trying to do more. So is the United Kingdom. I think this is one where we will get more help, but somebody has to articulate a policy. And right now, nothing really is coordinated. There's so much to be done. We are so far behind. And uh, as I said about this mystical attachment, we go around when we meet Americans on holiday or we meet Europeans, we talk about we're a northern people, we talk about our terrible winters and whatnot. But most of us live very close to the United States border, including the people of Vancouver. And uh, we just have this idea about the Arctic. We don't do anything about it. Others do. We will lose it. We will lose it incrementally. It's not going to happen tomorrow. And of course, with the uh, coronavirus pandemic, that's taking a tremendous amount of money. I get some of that, not all of it, but I certainly get some of the reason why we're doing that. But other countries uh, uh, are not worried about the money, specifically China and and Russia. And uh, we better watch, watch out because the pandemic does not stop all the other questions that we should have about Canada and its future. And one of those, Mm -hmm. certainly, uh, there's no bigger one than our security. All right, Matthew, thank you for your time today. Well, thank you for seeing me. That's Matthew Fisher. He's a military journalist, global news commentator. This piece that he's written about protecting Canada's north can be found on our website, globalnews.ca. So new cases of COVID-19 remain uncomfortably high here in British Columbia. We're talking between 100 and 150 every day for the last couple of weeks, not just here, but, you know, we're talking next door in Alberta, Ontario, Quebec have seen, you know, 400 cases per day for the last week or so. So yeah, it's some alarming trends that we are seeing and we are not alone about this and about health officials sounding the alarm. We thought we would check in with Shane Woodford, of course, former CKW reporter, now freelance reporter in Denmark. Good morning, Shane. Good morning, Simi. How are you? I'm good, thank you. So I understand Denmark is also having similar issues. Yeah. Uh, matter of fact, uh, about half an hour before our conversation, uh, they updated uh, the last 24 hours worth of stats, Simi, and I can report that Denmark in the last 24 hours has recorded the highest number of new COVID infections to date with 678. It also marks the first time ever Denmark has exceeded 600 new infections in a single day. And so what has been going on? We know that for here, it resulted in things getting, you know, seeming back to normal for too many people, too much socializing going on. What's Mm. happening there? Yeah, I think it's evidence seems to be growing. It's sort of growing out of two areas. One is something we've talked about before, which is 
uh, a lot of younger people, which don't seem to be paying too much attention to the restrictions or relaxing too much. Uh, the main growth in infections here in Simi, uh, here in Denmark, sorry, Simi, uh, according to the data from the Ministry of Health and the Ministry of Education here, are in the age groups between 10 years old and 29. Uh, so that hints a lot at a return to school, a return especially to university and college, uh, the resumption of partying and drinking and all that kind of thing, which is something that we knew was going on. The other piece of evidence that seems to be growing, and Italy's sort of become a barometer for this, is that a lot of countries apparently seem to have let down their guard early. We rush back to uh, as close to quote-unquote normal as we could, restaurants reopened, shopping resumed, and mm -hmm. people were, you know, hesitant at first, and then, you know, gradually as they began to kind of do those normal things day in and day out, um, they dropped their guard, and things began to circulate that way. And I use Italy because Italy has not dropped their guard yet. They're still maintaining a state of emergency powers. They've uh, done a lot of the small things that the rest of Europe kind of became a laggard in as they rushed to get the economies re-going. And although they too are seeing a surge in infections, it's nowhere near the scale of, say, a Spain or a France, which are both recording over 10,000. Yesterday, France recorded the highest number of daily cases yet, uh, and hospitals there, concerningly, are, are getting jam-packed as well. So while other countries here in Europe are seeing a really crazy insurgence, Italy seems to be keeping it under control because they didn't deviate from all the things, social distancing, masks, all that kind of stuff like the rest of us did. Yeah, and so what happened in Denmark then? Did people deviate, or is there a lot of mask wearing? Or are there still restrictions? Yeah. I get that question a lot. Masks were never a thing here, Simi. I mean, until about three or four weeks ago, I could probably count on one hand the amount of times I've seen somebody in Denmark wear a mask. Really? Uh, then we began to see a resurgence in infections, and they mandated masks for the first time on board public transit for anybody over the age of 12. Since the last time you and I talked and infections really started to shoot up, um, they turned what were local restrictions. The strategy before was that um, if there's a municipality, let's use Copenhagen as an example because it, it did happen there as well as 17 other municipalities initially. If there was a sign of an outbreak there, they would enact local restrictions and bring a bunch of things like reducing the size of gatherings, that kind of stuff. And one of the things they did here in Denmark was in those areas where there was outbreaks, they mandated that you must wear a mask inside a restaurant uh, if you were standing or moving you know around going to the bathroom moving between tables or if you're a server or something mm -hmm. since then because the number of infections in denmark has now exploded across the country uh as of about a week ago uh those local restrictions were implemented immediately nationally so now it's a national thing if i go into a mcdonald's or a restaurant or anything i have to mask up now which is something that previously did not exist here. but are people doing it i guess is the question Yes, people are doing it, by and large. Uh, Danes are, are very common-sense, law-and-order-orientated people. If it makes sense and it's going to improve their safety, uh, they do it. There is, you know, a tiny amount. To date, I was looking at the stats today, there's like three people that have been fined for not wearing a mask on the bus. You know, so you get right. you know, a very, very, very tiny minority that try and, you know, wave the idiot flag and, and do that kind of thing, <laughs> which seems to be more prevalent elsewhere. Um, but, you know, what about parties? Because that was a problem that I know we've had here is social gatherings and getting out of control. And I know that a lot of neighbors don't like it. People don't like it when they see it happening. But has yeah. it been happening there? Yeah, absolutely. It's been happening to the point where 
uh, police are now sort of staking out areas where young people are gathering. Uh, you know, big cities have their favorite hangout spots. Mm-hmm. Uh, police are now out in force in those areas uh, with restaurants and bars. Keep in mind that nightclubs and discos are a separate thing here, and those have been closed the entire time and have still not reopened. But we do have sort of bars, which are more of a pub kind of thing in, in sort of North American vernacular and restaurants. Um, those are now closed at 10 o'clock nationally, and they cut off liquor sales super early, and police are on hand to make sure that uh, when there's an exodus at 10, people are going home quick, fast. Also, interestingly, some restaurants and bars here now have to legally post um, a uh, an occupancy limit sign outside saying we can hold you know 57 people or, or whatever it is, and they must adhere to that. So mm. there's been a real crackdown, and, and pleas from politicians um, local Prime Minister Meta Fredriksson actually showed up on, you know, one of the top uh, Danish influencers on Instagram to plead with young people to just, you know, reduce their social bubble. So there's a multi-pronged effort to cut down on that kind of thing. It is fascinating to watch the similarity happen all over the world, yes. isn't it? To see that this is exactly yeah. the pattern that everybody is seeing. Yeah. I I think that one thing that we're doing slightly better than you guys at is, is COVID testing, though. So, I mean, I was looking at the numbers between BC and Denmark, and there is a huge difference there. Yeah, that's true. I know that um, we spoke to the health minister, Adrian Dix, a couple weeks ago. They are ramping it up here to 20,000 per day, especially heading into flu season. Right now, I think we're at about eight or 9,000 uh, per day. But yeah. even that is a huge increase over, say, two weeks ago or three weeks ago. So they're getting there. Yeah, Um we always talk about how BC and Denmark are good sort of comparators because they yeah. have similar sized populations, right? So yesterday you guys did about 7,500 COVID tests. Yesterday, Denmark did 53,885. Interesting. To date, BC has done 497,000 and change total. Yeah. To date in Denmark, we've done 3.6 million. That's and amazing. I think the thing that really concerns me is that the BC CDC website, when I was kind of perusing it last night, actually doesn't even recommend a test if you don't have symptoms. And, you know, every epidemiologist that I'm following, everybody that I'm talking to says that you have to have a voracious testing program, one that goes beyond just testing yeah. people who have symptoms, right? Because and an example is, you know, the last time you and I talked, I mentioned that there was a grade two student here in Denmark who went for a precautionary test, had no symptoms happened to have contact with somebody who is COVID positive here in Denmark, that means you get a test and that child tested positive. Now, if the rule of the day here was we're not testing people who aren't exhibiting symptoms in a disease that is highly, you know, um, infectious for people who don't have symptoms and have it, uh, we might not have known that that child had COVID, goes back to school, who knows what happened. You've got to cut those infection chains. And if you don't know somebody has COVID and you can't isolate them and you can't track who they're talking to, then you don't know where the infection's going. Interesting. Shane, thank you. Thank you, Simi. Stay safe. We were just talking about the rise in the number of COVID-19 infections, not just here, but, you know, all across Europe as well. A lot of it being attributed to younger people. So we're talking between the ages of, say, 20 and 29 uh, and just uh, too much socializing going on. For more on this, we're joined now by our Nikki Reitmeyer. Good morning, Nikki. Good morning, Simi. Did you hear the story? I mean, speaking of about this, uh, up in West Vancouver, police busted yet another house party, 
big loud event happening. The neighbors called to complain. Oh, so man. the cops show up and they find more than 50 people partying in a house in West Vancouver. They said there was no social distancing. Of course, there was no hand sanitizer. There was no you know list of attendees being taken. So there was no contact tracing. And the owner of the house, who was the host of the party, ended up getting a $2,300 fine as a result. But I mean, are these fines enough? Because some people clearly are not getting the message. Clearly not. I remember just the other day, I also saw a story about, uh, uh, I think it was a condo in Burnaby, like a penthouse suite in Burnaby, where police attended. Uh, same thing happened, broke up a party next day, called back different group of people, also a party oh. in the same suite. See, that makes me crazy. That reminds me of the story in Victoria when we first saw these new rules come into place. And they said, look, we're going to give you these big fines if you're throwing parties. And it was exactly the same thing. Same guy, two nights in a row throwing parties at his apartment, back-to-back tickets for throwing these events. And you just go, you know, if the fines crazy. aren't working, yeah, what is what is the solution here? You know, how do you get it through people's thick heads that they can't be throwing big raging parties during the time of COVID-19? They are not above spreading this virus i wonder is twenty three hundred dollars enough then well yeah i mean not enough of a turn yeah it does make you wonder because if there if this person who is the homeowner in a huge house in west vancouver is twenty three hundred dollars enough for throwing a party was that really a deterrent you know what, what does stop people this is the same conversation we have about supercars speeding across the Lionsgate Bridge, isn't it? I mean, if you're driving a $250,000 Lamborghini, you don't really care if you get a, I don't know, $200 ticket for speeding. Yeah. It doesn't, it's a, it's a drop in the bucket. So I wonder if it's the same mentality with people who obviously have a lot of money and they're throwing big parties in their beautiful penthouse suites or their gorgeous homes up in West Vancouver, they get a $2,300 fine and they go, well, I th- you know, throw it on the kitchen counter. I'll deal with that later. Who cares? It's not enough money to even bother me. I, I almost wonder if it's that same mentality, essentially. Do you think naming and shaming is more effective? I love naming and shaming. Oh, Absolutely. Oh, wow. The enthusiasm. Okay. <laughs> no, I mean, not in all circumstances. You know, I think only when it is merited. But obviously, there's there's certain people here who we need to take a different strategy with. If this isn't working, if the idea of fining people is not actually working, do you need to name them? Should police be saying this person was fined $2,300 for hosting some kind of a rager, you know, in a home? Is that more effective, do you think, than just handing out the fines? And Nikki, I'm guessing you would say yes, that would be more effective. Yeah, I think that some people, some people certainly have it coming. Now, this is interesting because I know out at UBC, some of the fraternities are still holding in-person events. So there's actually a petition online oh right now put up by a UBC student hoping to curb some of these in-person rush events. Now, the sororities, they've done virtual events for rush, but the fraternities are still doing theirs in person. Apparently, they, they have a rule that there can only be, you know, 50 people or less than 50 people. Still. They've got to be outside. But yeah, I mean, come on. I know one student at UBC said, guys, the beer pong can wait. We're in a pandemic here. And yeah, they're absolutely right. And yeah, they are supposed to be acting a little bit older now. They're not in high school anymore. I think that's just ridiculous. Um, Nikki, thank you. Thanks, Simi. Sorry, Nikki Reitmeyer there. So what do you think? Do, you, is, do we need to do one step further, like one step beyond just finding people? What's the answer? Naming and shaming people? Or is there a better alternative? 
If you're thinking of maybe taking a drive this weekend, getting out of the house, going somewhere different, you might want to put Stanley Park back on your list of places to go. After months of kind of altered conditions in the park that many people weren't happy about, cars are once again going to be allowed through Stanley Park and cyclists will be going back on the seawall starting tomorrow. So we wanted to talk about this process and what's going on now. Joining us is John Cooper, who's a Vancouver Park Board Commissioner. Thank you very much for being here. Good morning, Simi. Thank you for having me. Well, what exactly is going to happen then tomorrow? What will people notice? Well, they'll see approximately 10 kilometers of orange cones coming down overnight, uh, which I'm quite happy about, to be honest. I I think that uh, people want to get back into into the park and the businesses want to uh, have full access to their parking lots and that sort of thing. So I think it's a it's a it's a very positive thing. I'm just it's unfortunate that it's so late in the season that uh, Many of these partners that we had in the park, including Prospect Point, the Tea House, the Aquarium, you know, Legends of the Moon, and and the the, the horse-drawn uh, trolley is uh, have suffered quite a bit. Would you say that was a failed experiment that we had this past summer? Well, I I, I was never really uh, happy with it. I mean, certainly when it first happened and we closed Stanley Park, uh, you know, it was early days of COVID. Um, I think everybody supported that in terms of public safety, but we haven't. You know, we didn't close the seawall all around False Creek or Vanier Park or Spanish Banks or anywhere else. And uh, I think it was a bit of an overreach, to be honest. And I think it hurt a lot of our a lot of our partners where business the rest of the city. You know, we were trying to do everything we can we could for restaurants to uh, keep them viable. And uh, we didn't do the same in Stanley Park. So I think the Cope Green Alliance at Park Board uh, had a bit of an overstep here. So is everything going back to the way it was then pre-pandemic? Is anything going to stay changed? Like, what about Beach Avenue? Yeah, Beach Avenue does not open, and that's another, um, that's a concern in that um, we've had a lot of pushback from the Persons with Disability uh, Committee at the City of Vancouver, uh, Peter Peter Brown, who's the chair. There's actually only one, um, um, two spots, really. Uh, there's a, there's at Vancouver Aquatic Centre, there's a disabled parking spot, and at the park board offices at the very far end of beach, there is a disabled parking spot. But the other uh, spots, because the parking lots aren't accessible because of the change in traffic flow along beach, uh, I believe there's four um, disabled parking spots that are unavailable to people. And, and a lot, you know, people that can't get around or have, have mobility issues, obviously, they're pretty upset about not being able to get down to their beach especially, you know, when uh, we, we're trying to do everything about accessibility. Right, so is it going to stay that way for a while then? Well, that's the city That's the city of Vancouver. That's under their slow streets. Um, they've done that, so I really I really don't know the details. You'd have to speak to a, to a, a city councillor about that. The other thing that's uh, c- concerning is you can't exit Stanley Park along Beach. You have to go around Lost Lagoon and uh, exit on Georgia. Which again is, you know, can be quite inconvenient for folks that, uh, you know, a lot of people, myself included, over many many years, you know, you, you might uh, go into the park and have a drive around the park and, you know, stop and have something, have a bite, and then you want to come along uh, that scenic uh, drive along beach to get get back into the city, and so um, uh, I, I don't know the reason for that at this point. I mean, it's pouring rain most of the time as we get into the fall. Um, and, um, you know, it's worked very well for many years. So I, I think that's something the city should look at. Well, you must have gotten a lot of feedback about this. 
Yeah, sure did. It's probably one of in the nine years that I've been on the park board. You know, it's been probably one of the one of the real hot button issues. Uh, uh, fellow NPA commissioner Tricia Barker and I have been, you know, uh, uh, pushing back. And part of the reason is, you know, uh, regular parking revenue in the, in Stanley Park in a normal time gives us about two million dollars in, in revenue, which helps to pay for the maintenance of the park. Right now, the park board faces about a thirty million dollar shortfall. And uh, of all times to, to, you know, cut down on your revenue, which is our park partners and all those things, it's, um, to me, it seems like it uh, wasn't the right time um, to do this do this experiment. Now, there's things in the park that could change to improve cycling, I, you know, and, and mm-hmm. there's a cycling plan that I've supported. and But this was just, uh, I think, just too much, <laughs> too much in one go. Too much, especially when everybody, it seemed like, wanted to use the park and it just yeah. wasn't working. Well, that's right. And, and, you know, if you look at, we usually get about 12 million people a year visit the park. Now, that's a big number. And the cycling advocates are talking about, well, they've had 750,000 cyclists or something like that through the park during this period. Well, it is a COVID time, so the numbers aren't what they would be. But that's still, a, uh, that's a long way from 12 million visitors. So, you know, I, I, when this is all over, you know, I think we should look at probably making some improvements where there's some pinch points. But I don't think we need to fix something that's not really broken. All right. So officially then, as of tomorrow, people can take that drive through Stanley Park that they perhaps have wanted to for the past couple of months. Yeah, and cyclists are, are also welcome on that roadway. They have for many, many years, like some of the cyclists that are a bit more, uh, you know, want to go faster, they're welcome to, to share the road, the two lanes with the vehicles. And then uh, anybody who wants to take that most beautiful ride probably in the world along the seawall is, yeah. is, is, is so we're back to normal so i think it's great okay good thank you so much for your time thank you have a great day you too that's john cooper who's a vancouver park board commissioner talking about the return of uh, well more cars through stanley park and cyclists can go back onto the seawall starting tomorrow and or if they're faster they can definitely stay on the road as well but boy was that ever contentious this past summer as john cooper mentioned there they tried to do the right thing during the pandemic they thought this might work it clearly did not go over well with the public and now they're going to have to kind of go back to the drawing board on this one but in the meantime if you want to go for a drive through stanley park conditions might be a little better for you to be able to do that now. We're helping the provinces and territories ramp up their capacity on testing while creating a federal response team for surge demand. And as soon as there's approval for faster tests to be used safely, we'll get them out across the country. It's Prime Minister Trudeau there on the throne speech. Faster testing, a national long-term care strategy, national child care consideration plan, and a long list of other promises were all included in that throne speech and the address to Canadians from the Prime Minister. Let's talk more about it now. Joining us is Carla Qualtro, who's the Federal Minister of Employment, Workforce Development, and Disability Inclusion. Thank you very much for joining us. Good morning. That's a lot of ambitious things there. Can a government that's in a minority situation really get all that done? Well, I think the the message that the Prime Minister wanted to convey to Canadians was first that we're still smack dab in the middle of a pandemic. And our first priority as a government is to uh, keep Canadians safe, keep our PPE stock up, help with testing, uh, invest in vaccines, and really focus on the pandemic. You know, the second message is at the same time, we have to look forward and um, the world isn't where it was eight months ago. And we had to present a vision um, that really recognizes that it, it, it's hard to believe that our last speech from the throne was only eight months ago with all that has changed and all the, 
the directions we've gone in in the world, um, we really needed to set forth a different path for Canada. But can we afford to do all that? Is this the time to set more expensive goals when we've already got a very big bill for this past year? It's a really important question. And, you know, the deputy prime minister, who's also the finance minister, uh, and I did a press conference yesterday where she talked very bluntly about um, the interest rates now being giving us an opportunity to invest, how we came into this pandemic with such a strong fiscal position, the best amongst G7, um, how our investment in the health and safety of Canadians have positioned us to recover um, quickly. And, and quite frankly, how time is how now is not a time for austerity. Yeah, but how long does that last? Because people know that, oh, yeah, some money has to be spent right now, but they know that the it's adding up. Absolutely. And I think what you'll hear from her in the fiscal update this fall is our plan to get back to uh, to address the deficits, to um, get Canada on the path through investments to economic recovery and, quite frankly, economic prosperity. This isn't just about getting us back where we were. It's about moving forward as a country. How much of the government work right now is focused on what seems like that second wave that's happening? Uh, the vast majority. You know, we, we're we very concerned. Um, we've been watching very closely as schools have, have reopened and, and scaled back. We've been watching provinces go to orange again. Um, we're absolutely focused on investing, as, as was said, in, in testing, in tra- contact tracing, in, in PPE. You know, we've got a much better stockpile than we had eight months ago. We've invested in d- domestic capacity, um, so we can now produce our own PPE in a way we couldn't a year ago. Um, but absolutely, our, you know, as a member of the Cabinet COVID Committee, I can tell you that the vast majority of our time is being spent on the pandemic response still. Now, you, of course, are the Federal Minister of Employment. How do we get more people back to work? Well, a couple of things. You know, we the Prime Minister committed to a million jobs in the speech from the throne, which is a very ambitious target. But when you think that, you know, we, we lost three million jobs since the pandemic started, we've only recovered 1.9 million of those jobs. So we still have a million to go before we even get back to where we were in February. So our plan is, is I guess I could say it's, it's kind of threefold. So first of all, we have to secure and maintain the jobs we have. That's about extending the wage subsidy. For many workers, the only thing between them and EI is the wage subsidy. So we're extending the wage subsidy to next uh, summer so we can shore up the jobs that we have and fortify those jobs. We also need to fill the jobs that are out there that are available. We have a massive skills mismatch in this country, so investing in training. Yesterday, we announced a $1.5 billion investment in training. And then really look at strategies to create new jobs. What, what sectors need more people? How do we you know, uh, appropriately skill people to, 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 to be ready for those jobs. It's a really, it's a all hands on deck, but quite frankly, everything we do will be looked at through the lens of job creation. How does, how does, how does this lead to more jobs for more people? Right. It has to. On, on that note though, Statistics Canada noted the other day about the really high number of youth unemployment over the summer, mm-hmm. uh, including a number of them students who went back to school just in the last couple of weeks, but they didn't work over the summer. So, and now yeah. you've got student loan repayments starting up again after a freeze mm-hmm. during the pandemic. How, how does the government square that circle? Well, I think, thank you for asking that because what, 
many students don't know about and we're trying to get the message out is there's actually a student loan repayment assistant plan that that the vast majority of students can access it exists now it's not a very widely known but i'd really like students across the, the country to know that if you're having trouble repaying your student loans there's a student loan repayment assist, uh, program in place now um and i would encourage you to explore that um, because we can help with that very difficult position. We, again, announced investments in our youth employment and skills strategy two days ago. Um, we're trying really desperately not to lose a generation here because of the pandemic. We know students have more debt, less job prospects, um, mm-hmm. you know, more precarious financial situations, and we're trying to help them. All right, we'll be talking more about it. Thank you very much for your time this morning. My pleasure. Nice to talk to you today. That's Carla Qualtrill, the Federal Minister of Employment, Workforce Development and Disability Inclusion, also Liberal MP for Delta, talking about the priorities of the Trudeau government as related through the throne speech. I know people felt like there was a lot missing from there, right? Including how are we dealing with this huge deficit, the debt that's going to come with that, uh, whether it's students now having to repay their student loans, when are we going to focus on those things? Sounds like the fiscal update coming in the next few weeks from the new finance minister, Krista Freeland, will be critical to hopefully answering a few of those questions. But we will see, of course, when we come back. We're going to find out what you've been saying about the B.C. provincial election. Oh, see, that scary music right there? That is the season for that, of course. And you would recognize it if you are a fan or even a casual watcher of horror movies. But I've talked to so many people who say, oh, I can't. I can't watch even one of those movies. I enjoy the occasional scary movie, and it turns out how much you enjoy those movies might have something to do with how you adjust during the pandemic. This is research out of the University of Chicago, and PhD student Colton Scrivener is the lead author and joins us now to talk about it. Colton, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me on. So tell me, how did you get started on this? How did you come up with this idea? Uh, well, actually, this this question was uh, inspired by a science journalist who had asked, of all things, uh, on Twitter, uh, this question of our horror fans dealing with the pandemic better. And uh, my colleague and I talked it over and thought, well, we're not sure. Let's test it. Uh, so that's kind of how it how it started. So how do you test something like that? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Well, for this study, what we did is we recruited about 300 people and uh, we had them fill out some surveys about uh, their personality, about uh, how they were dealing with the pandemic. So we asked them questions like, are you feeling more anxious or more depressed or losing more sleep? Um, We asked them how prepared they felt for the pandemic. So did they know what to buy? Did they, uh, were they taken by surprise, you know, by the, the consequences of the pandemic? Uh, and then we asked them about their favorite movie genres. So we asked them, you know, do you like horror films? Do you like romance films? Do you like comedy films? Um, and then we kind of looked at the data to see uh, if there was any relationship between things like personality and, uh, and resilience or perhaps like media preferences and resilience. Okay. And what'd you find? And so we found that, uh, as, you, as you said, the people who uh, were fans of horror films tended to experience less psychological distress during the pandemic. So this means they reported lower feelings of things like anxiety, depression, and sleeplessness. Um, so that, that was kind of our like main finding. That's so fascinating, though, Colton. Do you have any idea as to why that might be, or did you did you get into any of that? Yeah, I mean, we our, our study couldn't test that directly, but we did speculate based on some other work that's been done and some. Uh, and so, so basically, our what we're suggesting is that maybe what's going on is people who uh, spend a lot of time sort of scaring themselves for fun 
uh, are learning how to deal with feelings of fear and anxiety um, better than people who aren't. So basically, if you, you know, the more times you're exposed to fear or anxiety kind of in a safe setting, like, say, a horror movie or a haunted house or something, uh, you learn how to, like, what that feels like and how to sort of snap yourself out of it a little better. So when you face these things in the real world that make you feel fearful or anxious, uh, you might be a little better, a little better at dealing with it. Okay, that is so fascinating to me. And and you use something called a morbid curiosity test. And I took a look at this test, and some of these questions <laughs> are really out there. Tell us about this. Sure. So the morbid curiosity scale is a, basically just a short little questionnaire that assesses people's uh, intrinsic motivation or interest or curiosity uh, about things that are threatening. Um, and so this could kind of fall under several different categories. But the basic idea is that um, there's kind of this interest in things that are maybe paranormal or maybe like dangerous people, so like true crime or something like that. Uh, and what we found with that was that people who were who scored higher in morbid curiosity were experiencing greater positive resilience during the pandemic. So this means that they were able to find uh, things that they enjoyed to do during the pandemic. So even if they were feeling a little stressed or, you know, uh, even though the pandemic was bad, they were sort of able to find things to enjoy this is so fascinating so could it possibly be that people who see those things like i'm a big true crime person i watch all those kinds of shows does that mean that because we witness the dark side of human nature perhaps we are more kind of philosophical about it that could be one uh one route to it you know like i said we didn't uh in this particular study we weren't able to test uh like the mechanisms you know um but yeah that's definitely one one possibility is that people who, who watch these kinds of things are maybe uh, better able to reflect on things that feel dangerous. Um, and so maybe that leads them to feel a bit more calm in some cases. Right. Because some of the questions on your test, though, if I lived in medieval Europe, I would be interested in attending a public execution. So is that just trying, yeah. to, trying to determine what people's level of morbid curiosity is? That's right. You don't want to ask them direct questions, you know, like uh, about things that are uh, like, let's say we, we wouldn't want to ask them direct questions about coronavirus. And so you ask them kind of these indirect questions that get at the same idea that they're kind of interested in this uh, taboo or sort of uh, maybe violent or, or threatening kind of uh, situation. Right. Is it just a personality? It doesn't mean that they're interested in doing it, you know, yeah, just that they're interested in learning about it. Is it a personality quirk then, do you think? Like there are always going to be just people who like scaring themselves with scary movies versus people yeah. who just don't. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, scary stories have probably existed for, for a long time, right? As long as any other kind of story. Um, and so it's kind of an interesting question to see, like, well, why, why do humans tell scary stories, right? Um, when they could just tell positive stories. Right, but if you tell just positive stories, then a pandemic comes along and perhaps you feel right. it a little bit more deeply. <laughs> That's right. So where do you go from now with your research? So we do have a couple of uh, follow-up studies planned. One of them... Uh, we're actually doing a cross-cultural study in Brazil and Denmark and uh, in the, in the U.S., uh, where we're looking to see if people who, like horror fans, for example, or morbidly curious people, uh, whether or not they're following uh, government-sanctioned guidelines oh. that are during COVID. So are they, yeah, so are they uh, social distancing better, or are they doing worse? Um, and then we're also looking at some uh, specific mechanisms that might be going on. So we're trying to test this idea that people really are getting better at regulating their emotions when they uh, interact with scary media. Fascinating Um, stuff. There's a couple different directions we're trying to take this. I love it. Colton, thanks so much for telling us about it. 
Yeah, no problem. Thank you for having me on. That's Colton Scrivener, PhD student at the Department of Comparative Human Development at the University of Chicago. They're essentially studying the psychological impact of people who like scary movies. And does that allow them, does that give them more coping mechanisms for dealing with, say, depression or anxiety, dealing with things like the pandemic? Are you a horror movie person? Email me, simi at cknw.com. Let's talking. Let's talk about having a good time out there. There's lots of events that have found a way to keep going. I've really noticed that in the last month or so that all sorts of events that would normally be scheduled for fall kind of in person are finding a way to go ahead but online and moving forward. And that's why we want to highlight this next one for sure because one of the best charity events of the year still going ahead it is the Canadian Walk for Veterans. And we wanted to find out more about it so we could pass that information on to you. So joining us now is Mark Burchell, who's the national organizer of the Canadian Walk for Veterans. Mark, thanks for being here. Well, thank you for having me on the show, Simi. Well, it's so important to talk about this. So tell me, there must have been a lot of planning going into this about how to move this forward. Well, for sure. And you know, normally, as uh, as you're probably aware, we would have our Canadian Walk for Veterans in uh, in locations right across the country. And this year, we had planned to be in 14 cities across the country when you know offering our usual barbecue and walk and some speeches and festivities but uh yeah with the advent of uh, COVID-19 we had to kind of reinvent ourselves and you know it's a pretty good example of uh of some of the benefits of uh, reinventing yourself because um we decided to go virtual and uh, offer Canadians uh, everywhere the opportunity to walk where they want, when they want, over the weekend on Saturday tomorrow and Sunday the next day. So uh, we asked people to register online and then uh, walk wherever they choose to, think about our veterans, our first responders, and uh, and actually all frontline workers during this COVID uh, pandemic. And then uh, share their experience over our Facebook page, uh, you know, take a video or send in a picture. And the beauty is, is uh, of this now is, is that instead of having walkers in 14 cities like we had planned, right now we have walkers in 103 cities right across wow. Canada and as far away as Florida uh, Michigan, and even in Melbourne, Australia. Mark, that's amazing. <laughs> it's pretty cool, all right. Yeah, who knew that by having to switch to going virtual that you could kind of reach a bigger audience that way? Has that surprised you? Well, it has in some respect. Yeah, I mean, certainly the way the, the uh, that Canadians have embraced this, uh, you know, the Canadian Walk for Bre- Veterans um it's not such a surprise because, you know, really we owe them a lot. We owe our, our veterans and our first responders a lot. But I guess, uh, you know, it just is a testament to the resilience of uh, Canadians to adapt. And, and I think, you know, that's the message of hope going forward is that, um, you know, when we need to, we can adapt. And, uh, and, and given the opportunity, we can probably come up with something better. Okay, so what? how do people get involved? I know you kind of outlined it there, but if somebody wanted to do this, what do they have to do? Well, what we ask people to do is go on to our uh, website at www.canadianwalkforveterans.com 
register for the walk and uh, and then you know walk, run, do push-ups, uh, thank a first responder, just uh, what, however you choose to celebrate the Canadian Walk for Veterans weekend, and then uh, share that with us on our Facebook page, uh, you know, pictures and videos, and and then um, we every year we issue a challenge coin, and uh, this year. Uh, we won't be able to hand them out physically, so we'll uh, be passing them out. And because our tribute this year is to all frontline workers, the front of our coin has a maple leaf with a heart in the middle, of it, and it just says, thank you or merci. And that's the heart of Canada, and mm-hmm. the heart is symbolic of all frontline workers. And on the back, it says, to those who rise to the challenge of service before self. That is so lovely. Okay, so Mark, where can people get more information? Uh, just go to www.canadianwalkforveterans.com and everything you need to know is there. Uh, you can register online. It's $20 per person or $60 for a family of four or more. And uh, kids 12 and under are free, but everybody gets uh, who registers gets one of these beautiful challenge coins made by a veteran-owned company right here in Canada. Oh, I love it. Well, Mark, best of luck. Thanks for talking to us. Well, thank you very much, and uh, get out there and walk this weekend. We will certainly do so. That is Mark Burchell, the national organizer for the Canadian Walk for Veterans. Normally, as you heard him say, big event in about 10 cities, except because of the pandemic, they had to rethink what they were doing. They've gone virtual, but it also means that they can broaden their reach. And now they are in dozens and dozens of cities out there. And it's actually even bigger than ever, which is what a wonderful thing that is. So yeah, I love the way people are kind of rethinking this and moving beyond the traditional way of doing things when we have to, right? Human spirit is amazing.